I think we're all right. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to breakout session number three. Uh, my name is Dr. Dunsing. I'm a senior fellow. I was a Warsaw fellow last year. And um, in that regard, I had the great pleasure of getting to see Kurt the senior lecture in Sarajevo at the conference last year. Um, so I really was excited to be his introducer this year. Kurt uh, is an independent policy analyst in Sarajevo, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. He's the co-founder and senior associate at the Democratization Policy Council, which is a global initiative for accountability uh, on democracy promotion. In that regard, he's testified in the Irish Houses of Parliament Joint Committee on European Affairs in 2008 and 2010, and similarly at the U.S. Congress Joint Helsinki Commission the next year. Uh, what he's going to be talking about today um, is a project called uh, Diplomat's Handbook, and as I understand it, it's a project that's been a long time coming and has brought together a lot of great minds and ideas. And I'm quite excited to hear him explain it. So welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, good morning. Uh, it's still morning. Uh, I want, uh, as Anna said, uh, I want to talk to you today briefly and introduce the idea of the Diplomat's Handbook for Democracy Development Support. It's kind of a mouthful, so we usually just call it the handbook. Uh, but the genesis of the project was about six years ago. I got a call from uh, a former American ambassador named Mark Palmer, who used to be our ambassador to Hungary in the late 80s, mid to late 80s. Uh, and he got into a difficult row with, uh, with our then Secretary of State, James Baker, uh, in, in the late 80s because he had, was reaching out to the opposition dissidents and having them over at the embassy and and at one point uh, James Baker pulled him aside and said hey look you know I know these guys are your friends and everything but they're never coming to power uh, next year they were uh, so so uh, he he got, got in touch with me I'd worked with him on a book that he had done on how more broadly to uh, to assist in in fomenting democratic change to help nonviolent civic activists uh, get what they need from the outside to the extent they did need help from the outside uh, and what sort of policy framework uh, established democracies can have to, to assist that. Uh, when he got in touch with me in 2007, he said, I got this project. I want to I wanna actually get uh, an NGONIC U together with an established diplomat, which at that point, who, who at that point had been unidentified, to, to come up with a handbook of the sorts of things diplomats can do to assist civic and democratic activists, human rights defenders, uh, from their positions in embassies and consulates. So sort of a subset of what we had worked on earlier. Uh, because he said, diplomats aren't trained to do this. It's, it's generally, uh, you're trained to represent your country's interests bilaterally with the host government. Uh, and so, while different diplomatic uh, diplomatic training academies and uh, and 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 systems uh, do give some attention to these issues, generally it's 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 very very thin, uh, and so that was the genesis of what became the diplomat's handbook. So uh, I'm the co-author of it. I'm the director of research for it. Uh, the project director is a gentleman named Jeremy Kinsman, who had been the Canadian ambassador. Uh, most recently to the European Union, but prior to that to Russia and a number of countries uh, around Russia that he represented from Moscow. 
and then Italy and Britain. I forget the order of of of, uh, of his posts, but he was a pretty senior when he retired, and he had just retired when we started this project. And what we wanted to do, the 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 method we came up with was to try to define a taxonomy of sort of the sorts of things diplomats can do to, uh, from their posts in embassies and consulates, and then to do case studies to show what actually happened or didn't. Uh, we tried to be descriptive rather than prescriptive. So it's not a book saying you should do X in situation Y. Uh, but we hope that uh, diplomats and others who read the book uh, see that... Uh, in essence, there's, we have a broad portfolio of case studies. We want to make sure that none of them feel like they're completely in, in an uncharted territory. A lot has happened uh, before 1989. Uh, a lot has happened since uh, in terms, and a lot of this is just individual initiative where, where ambassadors or diplomats in the field felt like they had the running room from their, from their capital to be able to operate. Uh, so we've we've gone through defining this taxonomy. We call it the toolbox, and I'll go through some of those 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 tools. Bless you, in a moment, and then uh, give you some examples of the kind of activities that diplomats have engaged in uh, that we we've, we've tried to profile uh, in the handbook. Um, the case studies. It's a pretty broad portfolio. We started. We're just. I'm just finishing the the editorial process and the third edition. The handbook was designed to be a living document, so we're constant, well, regularly updating it. Uh, the third edition, uh, the second edition was published in 2010, so a lot has changed since then. Uh, we've added two new case studies, Tunisia and Russia. Uh, the existing portfolio of the second, second edition had Belarus, Cuba, China, Chile, South Africa, Ukraine, Egypt, uh, Sierra Leone and Tanzania, if I'm if I'm recalling them all correctly, um, and so we, in the in a future edition, I don't. I'd like to do Azerbaijan, for example, because I think there are a lot of ugly cautionary tales where Western diplomats were not helpful to the democratic opposition, and I'd, I kind of want to show show the underside too. Um, in any case. Um, Egypt obviously took a lot of work to update you know, from a 2010 version. There's been a lot that happened, so that, that wore me out uh, over the past few weeks. So a lot of these examples are fresh in my brain. Um, but uh, the method of, of getting this is a lot of, a lot of interviews, frankly. Um, most of this stuff is, is not written down, at least in, in public, public uh, sources. I mean, you'll get a hint of something in, in, the, in the newspaper article or something on what Diplomat X did in a given situation, if he's quoted. or But generally, you have to try to triangulate, track these people down and say, okay, what did you do in this situation? How did, how did that help? What, uh, what, uh, what lessons would you, would you draw from that that you can impart to your colleagues uh, in other situations? Um, so it's, it takes a lot of legwork and a lot of time on Skype. Uh, to, uh, to, uh, to track these people down. But it's, it's, it's interesting, and it was a very steep learning curve for me, I have to admit. I mean, I live in Sarajevo. I've been working in Bosnia for eight years, and so I, I get out of, of that role to do this. Uh, and while it's fun, it's also quite, quite dissonant because, you know, things are going on while, where I am, and my head's in Egypt trying to 
trying to update that case study and make sure that, uh, that it's indicative of everything that happened since in the past two years. Um, in, in brief, I guess the, 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 the sorts of things diplomats can do, I put them in sort of baskets. I'm stealing that term from, from the Helsinki Final Act. But there, there, there are groups of, of sorts of activities that diplomats can engage in. And I'll go through them very briefly uh, and try to give you some evocative examples of, of, uh, that, that came up in our research. Um, uh, I should say, just finally, the Diplomats Handbook is available online. Uh, you can get the second edition for free. It's at just at diplomatshandbook.org. Uh, the third edition will also be available that way, though uh, the Center for International Government Innovation, uh, Innovation in Toronto is, um, is publishing it. Uh, the third edition, and that pa the paper copy will actually be a trade paperback that's for sale. But the, but the, the full content is available online in PDF form for uh, chapter by chapter for anybody who is interested. So if you if you do have an interest, I'd encourage you to take a look. And if you have examples, I mean, this is an iterative process. If you have comments, examples, uh, things that you know that you think we should know and should be reflected in the book, please. This is this is what we end up going fishing this way. Uh, that, that we get, we, we rely on feedback from, from our readers, from uh, our consumers, if you will, in the diplomatic community. Um, the project was commissioned by the Community of Democracies, uh, which was, uh, was started here in Warsaw with the Warsaw Declaration in 2000. Uh, the then Polish, now late uh, foreign minister at the time, Bronisław Gieromek and Madeleine Albright, uh, decided that there should be there should be an agglomeration of democratic states, uh, and that club should grow. Uh, it's never really figured out what it's about. To be fair, uh, I I would, in my own personal preference, I'd like to see it be more proactive and try to come up with strategies on how to make sure there are more democracies, uh, and to assist those who are trying to make their states democratic. Um, it's, it's sort of a movable feast, so it's not really an organization. It's a series of, they have a permanent secretariat now here in Warsaw, but uh, in essence, uh, it assembles every two years. Uh, so the most recent one is in Ulaanbaatar, in Mongolia. Uh, and if you're invited, either as a, as a full invitee or an observer, that's one thing. If you're not invited, it's, it's sort of... Uh, you could see it as a mark against against be, not being considered a democracy. I personally saw a number of countries that shouldn't have been invited. Invited uh, in Lisbon in 2009, there were Egyptian diplomats who were haranguing uh, Egyptian Egyptian dissidents, Saad and Ibrahim, for one, uh, saying, "Oh, you're a criminal." And I, I I thought, "What the hell are these guys doing here? They're not, Egypt isn't a democracy." It doesn't even really pretend very hard to be a democracy in 2009. Uh, so uh, it, it's it's a problematic uh, it's a problematic group that really doesn't know hasn't completely gelled. Uh, but the one thing that it had done is it commissioned this, um, and so we hope we hope that it's a, a useful contribution. Now diplomats have assets where they're posted. Uh, they have things that they could deploy. Uh, to assist, to assist democratic transformation or consolidation. Um, uh, first of all, they have immunity. This is this means that they're in in a lot of ways they could do things that would normally citizens would get in deep trouble or actually hurt 
if they did. Uh, they could deploy that immunity quite, uh, quite effectively. I, I personally have an example from my own experience. I was uh, election, uh, part of the election observation mission in Ukraine in 2004 and 5. I was the political analyst in the headquarters of the, of the, of the mission. Uh, and uh, the Orange Revolution started in November that year. Uh, uh, before that happened, but, but between the two electoral rounds, um, the government started going after democratic activists, uh, even planting, planting explosives in their offices and finding them and saying, you see, these guys are terrorists. It was right after Beslarm in Russia. Uh, so they, they decided to use that as a hook. Um, I got a frantic call from my assistant one morning, really early, saying, Kurt, you know, they're trying to break into uh, Vlad Kaskib's house. And that was her cousin's. He was a head of a group called Para, which means it's it's time, it's high time, it's about time, uh, which was was uh, mobilizing. It was very important in trying to get people to the Maidan some weeks later after this. Um, when we got there, um, there were already two parliamentarians who were sort of standing at the door, keeping the the KGB successor, the SBU, the st the State Security Service, out of the apartment, saying we've got. We've got parliamentary immunity. I mean, you could you could beat us up, but you know it would look bad. So they were the ones who really saved the day. But um, by the time I got there, there were three people from the French embassy, one from the OSC permanent mission, and myself, uh, somebody from the, the the commission delegation, and and myself from the from the election observation mission there. And we couldn't do anything. We couldn't prevent them from, but we could watch them. And they didn't like that. I mean, secret police don't like to be watched, ever. And they were calling their bosses, saying, "What? We can't do. There are people right here. We can't do anything about that." And they finally got called away. It was a standoff for about six hours. Now, again, had the parliamentarians not been there, it would all would have been over by the time we arrived. But had uh, had the diplomats not been there, they might have they might have buffaloed their way through. Uh, we don't know. But in any case. Diplomatic immunity can be deployed as an asset uh, on the, uh, by diplomats to protect people and to, to say things that local activists can't say, uh, or at least that the consequences are a lot higher. Uh, support of their home authorities. Um, knowing that you have backup in London, in Berlin, uh, in Washington, uh, for, for, for representing your country's policy, for reaching out to to the broader society, and this is a this is a trend in, in in diplomacy that it's not simply state to state relations; it's 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 society to society relations. Diplomats quite often act as a connector of of their civil society to the civil society in 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 the host country. But the the knowing that you have that backup is very important. The example that I'm. Um, that I'm thinking of is also from Ukraine. Um, in 2004, the American ambassador, along with others, uh, communicated to the Kuchma government that if there was violence used against the protests, that, the, that their assets would be frozen. And they, they uh, as, as the presidential advisor put it, you will lose your honestly stolen money if, if you use violence. 
and apparently, according you know, in retrospect, that 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 was deemed by Ukrainians who were in the opposition at the time, who were in the government when we did interview. Now again in the opposition, uh, to have been to have been an important factor. Uh, they, the ambassador couldn't have said that if he thought that he could uh, that, that Kuchma could go call the you know Secretary of State or somebody in Washington to say is this true, and he might get caught flat-footed. Uh, but that he conveyed enough of that gravitas that that they knew that he represented uh, the president of the United States, and that and that support of the home authorities was was crucial. Um, different countries have different amount of influence. Influence is another asset that could be deployed. Um, for example, uh, the relationship that mattered most in Egypt uh, was was the relationship with the United States more than with European governments. Uh, it was a, that strategic relationship following from the Camp David Accords. Uh, it meant that if the Americans were letting things slide, uh, Mubarak could feel comfortable. But if the Americans Americans were became engaged. Uh, that it mattered. So, so the, the and and that formula varies from country to country. Uh, in I mean, for example, Poland Poland has a lot of influence in European Union policy toward Belarus. Uh, it was the main driver in this Eastern partnership uh, with the countries to the east of the European Union. Uh, so, so the influence of diff different diplomatic missions varies uh, according to their political relationship. Uh, just their strategic gravity, uh, how large they are, whether they have a strong trade relationship, these factors matter. Um, small amounts of funds that are deployed from embassies also can matter, uh, particularly to civil society organizations. Uh, it's usually uh, quite often best if these are done through sort of a, an organization that is not politically seen as politically representing a particular government. Quite often, it could be seen as uh, as a real problem if you if you're taking. And this was something again in Egypt. Mubarak pioneered this even before Putin. If you take foreign funds, you're a traitor. You're a spy. You're uh, you're you're not loyal. Uh, Mubarak started this in 1999. Uh, he was sort of a pioneer even before Putin adopted this law. Mubarak did. So that it's very sensitive and it's it's important. To, to try to do this at arm's length, try to be transparent. Uh, but small amounts of funds, uh, particularly if they're, if they're deployed in a timely fashion, uh, to assist uh, self-started civic projects, uh, and quite often to, to mobilize in a popular way, you need resources. You, know, you need to have cell phones. You need to, it's, it, it costs money to be an activist, even now, despite all the new, new technologies. Um, these these things require assets, uh, and and it could be a make or break issue. So that's another asset that um, that diplomats could deploy, and and demonstrating solidarity. Um, this is something uh, Liu Xiaobo, who uh, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010, uh, was tried for subverting the state. Uh, he 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 started a charter called Charter 08 that was by design reminiscent of Charter 77. And it basically demanded fundamental human rights be respected in China, uh, that according to, to documents the Chinese themselves had signed. I mean, China, China is a founding member of the United Nations. Universal, Universal Declaration of Human Rights has a number of, of political rights that are not respected in China. So 
This Charter 808 was a distillation of that, uh, yet uh, he was arrested. Uh, he's serving 11 years in a prison camp now. He was the only Nobel Peace Prize winner who wasn't allowed to have any of his family members go from, to represent him. You know, Lech Wałęsa sent his wife because uh, he was afraid he wouldn't be allowed back when he won the Nobel. Uh, Liu Xiaobo was only the second Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, to, to, to not have been able to be represented at all, so they had an empty chair for him, and they put the prize on the chair. Um, but when he was on trial, uh, a number of diplomats from, from, from democratic countries uh, tried to attend the trial, and they were kept out, but they stood outside the whole time. Uh, and they made sure everybody saw them. Uh, this is something that's happened when Václav Havel was arrested regularly. This was something that Western diplomats uh, made a point of trying to attend the trials and observe them. Da Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, same thing. So that demonstration of solidarity is important. And the final asset is legitimacy, especially when there are these foundational international documents that, that guarantee certain human rights and democratic rights. Uh, European Charter on uh, Human Rights, uh, Universal Declaration, uh, the Helsinki Final Act, which was a, a very important springboard. That's what created Charter 77 as a, as a way for Václav Havel and company to say, well, you've signed on to this, this, this basket of human rights that you're not respecting. Uh, we demand that you keep your word. And it kind of put, put the government in a box. It's, uh, you know, they... What they really would have were thinking is, yeah, we signed on to that, but we never meant it. <laughs> and uh, but but that was that was that legitimacy. This is something that diplomats could quote back and say, hey, look, you know, you're saying I'm intervening in your internal affairs, but are you or are you not a signatory to this convention? Because if you are, then you recognize that that uh, you know trials have a right to be observed, and so forth. In terms of the baskets of, of the actual applications of these assets. Uh, there, there are five of them, and I'm going to take five more minutes. That's it. I don't want to, but but one is just we call the golden rules: uh, listening, respecting, understanding, really knowing the nature of your environment. Uh, some of some of the more mundane, but actually quite important. Uh, there was a Swedish diplomat uh, named Stephen Eriksson, posted in Minsk. He's been expelled subsequently, but he was legendary in Minsk for speaking Belarusian better than most Belarusians. I mean, he made a point of learning it. Uh, and that was a real door opener, even with the government, despite Lukashenko's policy to try to, to russify things since he came to power linguistically, and now he's sort of gone back on it. But uh, for a long time, that made, it, that made him, this guy, quite legendary, and it gave him a lot of entree that, uh, that other diplomats couldn't have. And he would hang out with people. I mean, he'd go go to underground concerts and, and meet with meet with people that other diplomats wouldn't do. And so he, he, he was he it enabled him to be more effective. Uh, so and, and it and it conveyed respect for, for, for Belarus. Um, there's a tendency tendency among diplomats. Um, one one French diplomat who we interviewed said that you know the, the, the diplomatic profession is inherently conservative. Uh, and there's a tendency to overinvest in the status quo and say, this is, this is the way it is. It'll probably stay this way. And we're comfortable with that. We don't like change. We don't like, we don't like things to, uh, to get complicated. It's very comfortable to have uh, a bilateral-only relationship 
uh, with the government because then you know what your job is. You go, you, you, okay, I'm going to meet with this person at this ministry, and that's it. Um, you can't really do your job effectively today if that's your attitude, uh, especially if your country's foreign policy is one that promotes human rights and democracy, or at least espouses them. Uh, you have to you have to go beyond that box. Um, truth and communications is another basket of the, the applications of the assets I just discussed earlier. Some of these are quite interesting. I mean, China. In China, for example, uh, the American embassy has gotten itself in a lot of friction with the central government because it publishes air quality reports in Beijing. Now, this, they, they do this on the embassy's own website, and they say this is for the benefit of our staff, so they you know, 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 know what the situation is. Uh, but it just so happens that the air quality reports that the American embassy publishes uh, are quite at variance with the official version. Uh, it's, it's, it shows that the air quality is even worse in Beijing than the official statistics show. Now, they say you can't extrapolate from this. It's a point source. We're doing it at our, our own monitoring station at the embassy. But uh, the government has said, you know, stop. This is interference in our internal affairs. For you to be publishing this data, it's not – and they – the embassy said, well, this is, this is American territory. We could publish whatever we want. <laughs> and uh, they do. Uh, in a similar vein, though it stopped, um, there was a news ticker at the American embassy in Havana that was put so it could be seen from the street. But, but it was on the grounds of the American embassy. And, and the news reports, well, it wasn't just you know, Cuba news reports. Uh, but they, they were in Spanish, and, and the, the government did not like that at all. They tried to find ways to obstruct it so people couldn't see it. And uh, So that's one, one element of truth in communications. Another is, you, you may recall Cyclone Nargis in Burma uh, in 2008, if I recall correctly. Um, the government did not inform the citizens that the cyclone was coming. Uh, they had the weather reports. They were, they were told by, the, in particular, the Indian weather authority, this is coming, it's going to hit this area, it's going to hit the Irrawaddy Delta, you know, you should evacuate people. They were preparing for a, uh, a referendum on a new constitution, which was sub subsequently adopted by a ridiculous, you know, uninflated number of percentage of people. And they held the referendum, you know, while the rescue operation should have been ongoing. They didn't postpone it because they wanted to lock in the army in power uh, through that way, uh, in civilian clothes. Uh, in any event, the Im British ambassador at the time was a guy named Mark Canning. And the information that he got out on the situation on the ground uh, through his diplomats going out to the field and, and reporting on what was going on uh, sort of boomeranged back through the, th in particular, through the Burmese service of the BBC. So that's the way a lot of Burmese heard about what was happening was because the ambassador was telling journalists and the journalists were reporting it back and that because the their own government wasn't doing it. So that truth in communications, that reporting, um, which is a normal part of uh, diplomatic, diplomatic, that's sort of about the most cut and dry diplomatic job there is, is reporting back to your headquarters. Even that can have a, a very beneficial effect, especially when, when you've, you've got a situation where, the, where people are not informed. Third basket of, of the sorts of things diplomats could do is we call it working with the government. Um, 
this could inf- this could include, for example, advising the government on certain things. And so after South Africa's uh, democratic transition, after the end of apartheid in uh, 1994, they wanted to reform South African broadcasting system. Uh, so what they did is they brought in Canadian and Australian broadcasters uh, and said, this is how you actually run a, a genuine public service public broadcaster. That was something that the government requested. So it's not it's not always um, we don't focus solely in the case studies or, or, or the examples we come up with with just uh, opposition black and white cases. There are also cases where governments want uh, want external input in the Tanzania case study, that's, that we, we spell that out. But uh, advising the government, um, there was one quote that came actually from, uh, from Bosnia, um, uh, where, which sort of shows, and I, I'm sort of out of context here, but it, it, it goes to funding and financing. Uh, but it, it also follows from a lack of understanding your situational environment. Um, one NGO... NGO uh, person in, in Bosnia had said, uh, by now we know the game quite well with foreign donors. You know, We waste their money, they waste our time. Uh, which I thought was, was appropriate. So you really, if you, don't, if you don't make a point of knowing, knowing about the country where you're operating, you will waste your taxpayers' money, be ineffective, and p- perhaps even be counterproductive. So, but working with the government also can involve dialogues. Uh, it can involve sending demarches when the, when you when you're conveying your displeasure with a particular policy. Um, one dialogue which I found interesting it's a, it's also from Belarus. The, the former American ambassador uh, Mike Kozak um, had sat down with with his counterparts from the foreign ministry in Belarus. Belarus was uh, and remains there are a lot of personal sanctions against uh, against a number of government officials. Um, Mainly for disappearances of 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 opposition and journalists, uh, but also just for their general repression, not allowing much much in the way of opposition uh, opposition period, uh, but also uh, free information. And Mike Kozak sat down with them and said, "Okay, what do you want from us in our relationship? Let's let's spell it out, and we'll tell you what we want." And they they both came up with a list. And he said, and he tried to say, okay, well, let's correlate this. If you do X, we'll do Y. If you do Z, we'll do A. Uh, and the, he said, we actually literally cut it out with a pair of scissors, piece of paper. And uh, we got a lot, we got, apparently they got quite far in this process before the national security chief, uh, Victor Shaman, shot it down. But he said, even then, uh, it sent the message to, to middle ranking and even relatively high-ranking Belarusian officials, that you're not permanently in the doghouse. You can, you can if you change your policies, the, our relationship will change. Uh, and that, that sent uh, a quite important message. So at, at, at certain lower levels, those dialogues on things that seem quite mundane, you know, and, uh, though, though they're quite important, environmental policy, agricultural policy, those sorts of things can have a ripple effect in in the broader sphere of of of, of, of democratic and human rights. Uh, fourth basket is just reaching out, uh, communications with with citizens, trying to connect them. So, for example, connecting is one of the things we call where where 
ambassadors and diplomats essentially act as a clearinghouse. You know, you, 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 it, it could be something simple like I want to, I want to study study uh, study sociology in Britain. Yeah, and this is what I want to research. Do you, you know, do you, do you know a good program there? Uh, but it's it's more important. Quite often, it's also connecting civic activists to their counterparts abroad. Uh, and the more isolated you are, the more you need that that help. Uh, yes, you could find damn near anything online now, but you need to start to know where to look. Uh, you could trawl, uh, assuming you have you have internet freedom. Uh, but it's not the same thing as having a recommendation or being having somebody know what you're looking for and connect you to it. Uh, it's also fac- uh, facilitating um, and convening. Uh, one example was, was is, is and this has happened in a number of cases in Serbia, in Belarus, is a very fractured opposition uh, makes itself makes itself very easy to be manipulated. Uh, and until they 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 unify beyond a co- behind a common vision, uh, it's going to be it will be very difficult for them to present uh, a credible challenge to the authorities. Um, in Budapest in 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 1999 2000, uh, the U.S. government tried to do this with the Serbian opposition. They've also tried to do it with the Belarusian opposition. Um, so there there are a number of cases of that 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 convening. And also to get get these guys. I mean, a, a, a lot of these places are a very small pool. It's a febrile environment. There are a lot of, of personality conflicts that are counterproductive toward the goal. Uh, and uh, embassies have convening power. I mean, quite often, a number of governments have, uh, and this came up repeatedly in our in our research. Um, number of governments made a point of ha- having their receptions, having the opposition invited along with the government. The government's not used to dealing with opposition in a lot of these places, and certainly not used to having to, you know, stand in line for canaps behind people that you normally persecute and throw in jail. Um, so, but this is, that was, that was a way to demonstrate uh, that, you know, this is, you may be able to do that there, but this is, this is my party, and, uh, and I'll, we'll invite who we want, and these are, these are our counterparts too, not just you. Um, Finally, uh, the last basket, and I'll close with just a, a couple personal examples, uh, is we call it defending Democrats. Uh, some of these I've sort of foreshadowed a, mom- a few moments ago, um, but in, verifying and witnessing is, is one of the... Witnessing, like I told you at the trials, uh, is, is one method. Verifying is another. Ambassador Ford, who had been the American ambassador in Syria up until last year, um, went to Homs in 2011, along with the French, his French counterpart, uh, much to the displeasure of the Assad government, and reported back on what he saw. Uh, and it was uh, it was also a sort of a testimony to the, the nature of the violence at that time that uh, that it was almost all government directed, uh, and therefore therefore they they knew that he, he knew he could be reasonably secure. Uh, going there because because Assad probably would not call for a foreign ambassador to be shot as much as he'd probably like him to be gone. So that that was important. Demonstrating demonstrating is another method. The godfather of the handbook, who's who's unfortunately passed away, Mark Palmer, uh, died earlier this year. 
unfortunately. Um, he sort of made a name for himself in Hungary, and he's still quite respected there because he marched with uh, with the democratic opposition and popular opposition. I could guess, I guess you could say, in 1989, uh, if I recall correctly, it was the it was the reburial of Imre Naj, who had been the communist leader during the 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 fall uh, the the Soviet invasion in 1956. But he was the one who, 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 who took Hungary out of the Warsaw Pact in that brief interval uh, before the Soviets came in. Uh, and he was, he was murdered. And ultimately they found his bones and they were able to, they, they, they reinterred him. And so this was, this was, this was seen as a, a major sort of challenge to the, to the communist authorities at the time. But it was very popular. And, uh, and the fact that the American ambassador was showing solidarity there meant a lot to a lot of people. It still did. Uh, I, I, all the Hungarian diplomats I know will bring it up if you name Mark Palmer. Uh, so uh, the final point before I open the floor to you, uh, there's, in the name of Mark Palmer, uh, there's, there's a prize for diplomats now who, who operate, uh, who, who are forward-leaning in assisting civic and democratic activists, human rights defenders, generally defending and promoting democracy. Uh, and I'll give you two examples. First is the, the, the former American ambassador in Zimbabwe, uh, James McGee, who is, uh, is an African-American former Air Force officer. And I mean, he has an aura of command about him. It was, it was, he's, he's an impressive guy. He led a whole diplomatic convoy uh, into the countryside. Most, most most oppressive countries don't like diplomats to get outside the capital. They want to be able to keep an eye on them. They want to make sure that they control what you see and what you know. Uh, and a lot of diplomats are happy to play along with that because it's easier. It's a simple, simple dynamic. Uh, this convoy was multinational. It included the Tanzanian ambassador, the Dutch ambassador, the British DCM, if I recall correctly, the American ambassador. And they went out to, to investigate claims of people being intimidated, the opposition MDC being being attacked, uh, and and violence used against them, and and people in polling stations being intimidated. Uh, they were usually teachers that administered these, so they put the squeeze on them because they're public employees uh, to to go along with stacking the deck in the second round of the elections, and they were actually opposed by by thugs, for lack of a better term. Um, and the, the, the secret police tried to stop them uh, going from point A to point B. But they, they, they went on this tour, and they came back, and they put it in their reports, and they, they made it public that, yes, all these reports of intimidation are true, at least from what we were able to see. And uh, so he was a winner of the Mark Palmer Prize uh, when it was last given in 2011. And there was another diplomat, uh, a Peruvian. Um, his name is Ernesto Pinto uh, Bazurco Ritler. I know, a long name. He was the Peruvian ambassador in 1980. Now, I don't know how much this is before most of your time, and even I was quite young when this happened. But the, what the, the Mariel boat lift, uh, where you had this massive refugee wave come, come to Florida, uh, was precipitated by, uh, by the Cuban government, basically saying, uh, we're, we're going to open you, you want people? You can have them. They all come in your way. But... but Prior to that, what, what really acted as a spark was there was a, there was a rush on the Peruvian embassy and a number of other diplomatic missions in Havana. And the Peruvian embassy essentially became a campground 
there were over a thousand people on the territory of, 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 of the Peruvian embassy. And the Peruvian ambassador would, would made sure that they got fed rudimentary, uh, given, given the circumstances, but, but made sure that they were not pushed out, and they ultimately all got out. Uh, and so he was, he was uh, thousands of asylum seekers uh, were protected that way. Um, somebody who probably would have gotten the Mark Palmer Prize had he still been alive was, a, was a, a, the Swedish ambassador in Santiago in 1973, who did something similar. He made a point of protecting uh, a lot of Latin American people who would have been persecuted by Pinochet, because a lot of people came from elsewhere in Latin America to Allende's Chile. And then uh, come September 1973, uh, they, they, were, they were wanted. Uh, and uh, Henrik Edelstam protected them got them out, made a point of, uh, of, of ensuring that they all got out on planes. So that I've already bloviated long enough, but I wanted to, I wanted to give you an idea of what, what, uh, what the handbook tries to document uh, and what we'd like to do in the future, and I look forward to, to our discussion. Thank you. I saw you first, nice. Yeah, please, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, <coughs> thank you for speaking, and I especially appreciated this story of China, and I wanted to talk a little bit about... Oh, you want me to give you the mic? I know I'm loud, but... Oh, no, not that one. Not that one. Okay. You, you're the boss. All right. Thank you, everybody. Sorry. Thanks. Thank you. My name is Priyanka. I'm from the American delegation, and I was in Berlin. And my question has to do with... Um, the anecdote you said about um, about China and this issue of truth. So as a diplomat, you have um, allegiance to a nation state. Um, so this idea of truth, I mean, one would argue, yes, this is for promoting democracy, but one would also argue that this is a construct of soft power mm-hmm. because China and America have tension. So um, as someone who's interested in social justice issues mm-hmm. and wants to do something for the global community. Um, and our and our quote-unquote uh, relations and our enemies are not just nation-states, but also these non-state actors, especially in Yemen and Pakistan, for example. So how do you then balance, balance both your duty to your nation, but also this idea of exploring the truth? Yeah, especially with non-state actors, and especially when you can't have relations with certain communities. I'm speaking more about Yemen or Pakistan with these quote-unquote tribals or um, enemies of the state. That's a very good question. And, and you, you put your finger on the, on the biggest balancing act of all. Uh, and, and, and there's no, there's, there can't really be a satisfying answer to it. I mean, unfortunately, that, that, that uh, uh, it's a judgment call. Now, certain countries are better at doing this than others, but partly you could say cynically that if you have less interest in a place, you could be more forward-leaning on, on promoting democracy and human rights. So, for example, in the sort of aggregate of the research that, that I've done for the handbook, and, and, and it's, it, it seems to be a constant, there are a few countries that, that have diplomats who have regularly been uh, 
straighter, more forward-leaning uh, than others. And those are the Scandinavians, the Dutch, uh, uh, the Canadians. Uh, generally speaking, you know, power politics works in you know, the Americans, the British, the French. Germany and, J Germany and Japan, quite often, it's commercial commerce uberalis. And, and so that there's, there's, there's always a skew. Uh, and, and you're never going to find total purity. Um, but what, that's what makes it so fascinating is to see how much, how much people do within those confines. Because, because ultimately, um, I'll give you a personal example. When I, even before I started doing the handbook, um, I was talking to a, a, one of my mentors as a sort of NGO type. I worked with him a lot in Washington on the Balkans. His name is John Fox. He used to run the Soros Foundation in Washington. Um, he said, Kurt, you know, you want these guys to be heroes, but most people aren't heroes. Most people, most people, you know, they, they will operate within the confines of, is this going to, is this going to hurt my career? Is this going to, uh, is this, am I going to get in trouble for, 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 for adopting this policy or promoting, protecting these people, for example? Um, and the person that brought that out, which I thought was quite indicative, because it was in one guy you saw this sort of Janus, uh, was, was, he was Ambassador John Herbst. Uh, he was the American ambassador in Ukraine when I was there, and did a lot to, to uh, and was very much on the phone to try to prevent a crackdown in Maidan Nezhelznosti. Uh, but at the same time, pre prior to that, he'd been the American ambassador in Uzbekistan. You know where Islam Karimov boiled people alive, and 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 but he was our ally against Islamic terrorism uh, at that point. And it, it, so, if you read, there was a there was a guy named Craig Murray who was uh, who was the British um, ambassador in Uzbekistan at the same time, and he he got he got fired, uh, but uh, he was he really went outside the box. He wrote a book called A Murder in Samarkand that uh, that sort of documents his experience of this. And uh, he was quoting Herbst as, as just saying some of the most weaselly stuff you could imagine uh, to bend over backwards. Well, Uzbekistan recognizes Israel, so rah, you know, and, and it really about that thin. Uh, so um, doing that balancing act of trying to figure out, okay, how when, you're, when, when your interests and your values are seen to be in friction or at least not in complete conformity, what do you do? Um, and uh, you could play it safe. You could go by the book. You could keep your head down. Uh, or if there's something you really, it, it, it's ultimately a personal decision, and you can't take the individual out of this. That's why you know we sort of individualize the, the Palmer Prize. Uh, a lot of the examples are personal examples because these are, these they're operating within a policy framework. Uh, you could consider that policy framework as enabling as 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 you want to make it. Uh, do you want to to take what you see as your guidance uh, for the general framework of the policy and say, okay, well, this I see it as fitting in within under that umbrella, so I'm going to do it, and I'm going to let the chips fall, and I might get reprimanded, or worse, I might be recalled. Um, I think. Uh, the best you can do in, at a policy level to try to enable that is is to promote the people who, who do do forward-leaning things. And quite often, this is just organizational dynamics too. That 
if, if, if they do something and succeed, they'll probably be embraced even if they colored outside the lines. And if they fail, even if they did the right thing, they'll be punished effectively. So um, uh, institutionalizing this, which is what we're trying to encourage, uh, is hard because d it, or ultimately you still have that very old bilateral, bilateral role of diplomats uh, to represent your country's policy, be it commercial, be it strategic, be it military. Um, and there's no, there's no getting around that. It's a question of how do you, do, do you see, at a high enough level, does your government see you know, a functioning democracy in Pakistan, for example, in its strategic interest? I think it should. I think that's, but 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 that's not that has not been the driver for our policy for quite some time. I mean, you saw it with Musharraf and practically embraced by Bush. And so uh, I don't know if I I've even touched on answering your question. I, no, you you sort of you sort of have. Okay. What did what what did I miss? Um, okay. So, but this, our conversation, I I guess, because this is an international audience, is very U.S. centric. So I was wondering. If there are also examples in your book in which people did "quote unquote" the right thing that did not have to do within our U.S. frame, and you gave some examples. But there are a lot of non-American. I mean, I, 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 uh, I mean, we've made a point of that. Um, oh, and also, is it harder for non-Americans to "quote unquote" do the right thing as opposed to the Americans? Sometimes it's easier. I think a lot of times it's easier for. But I mean it. If you're a Dutch diplomat in Mubarak's Egypt, you you could get away with a lot more. Uh, you also you have less leverage, but you could get away with more uh, because because if Mubarak's unhappy with you, does it, how much does it really matter? I mean, how much trade was there? Yes, you have Dutch tourists going to, to Sinai, but that but with the American strategic relationship with Mubarak, it was it it meant there was a lot less leeway, and it also meant in a very direct way, that the diplomats on the ground had less, in, less influence because the, the decisions were made at a much higher level because it was such an important relationship. So uh, <coughs> that, that meant that, you know, if you're ambassador to Egypt, you had less leeway to sort of define and direct the policy than you, if you were the American ambassador to Tunisia, where the French were dominant. And the French relationship, the relationship between Tunis and Paris was the, was the primary they had the most leverage, but they also had the, the broadest portfolio of interests. Therefore, they were least likely to rock the boat. And that was the way the Americans were in Egypt. Uh, you, I see you, I see you, but please go ahead. I hope I haven't gotten people out of order. I'm sorry. Hi, I'm Sasha, I'm from the Netherlands. Um, and our diplomats have been criticized sort of in the past months mainly for their attitude towards Russia. Because they've been told they go to Russia and one of their one of their tasks is to defend business interests. So they go to Russia and they'll make a point of saying, Well, you're doing very bad things with the human rights and then they say, So now let's talk business. So you know, they have that out of the way and then they and then they go 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 on with their business talks. And I mean the the responses to this were very different, and some were very cynical and said, well, hey, that's their job, let them do their job. If they have to defend business interests, let them do so. But can we condemn them for not making more of a point of this, even if it would go at the cost of you know, our national interest? Ultimately, I mean, I think it's, 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 a lot of this is demand-driven on the side of the, of, of the country that sends the diplomats. 
what side of the Netherlands do you want to show in Russia? I mean, it's a question everybody has to ask themselves. I mean, what do you, would, would, um, would, would foregoing that procurement contract uh, be worth, you know, saying, you know, throwing the girls from pussy riot, riot in jail was wrong? Those kind of concrete questions, do you speak out about it? Um, it's, it's precisely the question that, 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 that Priyanka just asked and is or is facet of the same question. Uh, and again, there's no, uh, I think quite often it gets boiled down to an either or equation, uh, perhaps more than it should because it's, it's sort of a cop out. You could say, well, you know, we can't do that because we might lose the contract, so let's just zip it. Or we'll give the human rights portfolio to the lowest ranking diplomat and let the ambassador talk business. Um, but um, I think quite, ultimately it depends on how, how hardball you want to play it and how, how much the host government is willing to – how flexible they are. I mean, if, 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 if the Russians just say, all right, you know, we don't like what you said, you know, forget, forget getting that, that contract for, you know, upgrading the pipeline, uh, you're stuck. And, and they might do that anyway, capriciously. So, you know, you could ask a lot of foreign investors in Russia whether, whether how, how their returns have been. Uh, BP just got out, uh, forced out. So, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's uh, I, 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 ultimately, it's, it's the involvement. I, I would imagine the involvement of, of, of Dutch citizens in the kind of diplomatic uh, positioning you all have is probably more more informed and engaged than, than for example, in America. I'm, I'm just guessing. Uh, but uh, if you're even having that discussion, it shows that there's an awareness and, and a concern as to how the Netherlands presents itself in Russia. Uh, and ultimately, they're going to follow the flag, in the, but, but ultimately they follow the voters. And so if, you, if you're parliamentarians, and that's usually... I think that's the tip of the spear on almost everything, every human rights issue there's ever been. Congress was, was in the United States, was, was the driver rather than the executive, ultimately. Um, uh, including on support for solidarity here. Uh, rhetorical, though it may have been, though there was some concrete. Uh, parliamentarians tend to be more forward-leaning. This goes for the MEPs. It goes for, it goes for uh, individual member states. I'll give you a personal example that, that isn't really diplomatic per se, but it had diplomatic implications. Um, in Serbia, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of indicted war criminals who were missing uh, that they just couldn't find. Uh, but whenever there was a, a crunch point uh, in the relationship with the European Union, uh, miraculously they would be discovered. Uh, including, including, you know, for example, the intelligence chief, you know, he was basically bundled into a car, dro driven over the border into Bosnia, into the Republika Srpska, and discovered. And he, he dropped a dime on them when he got to The Hague. He said, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't arrested in Bosnia. I was in Belgrade. And, uh, but, they, they, but ultimately, it was parliamentarians in the Netherlands and started to be in Ireland who were asking the questions, who wanted to do a linkage between Serbia's aspirations to join the EU, so getting a stabilization association agreement, getting candidacy, and handing over Rakom Mladic. And lo and behold, 
when it became clear to to Boris Tadic that okay, this is an immovable object, and actually more people are asking questions in parliaments, he was found. Uh, so, so I think I think that the avenue uh, it's kind of circuitous, but the avenue to make sure that this these concerns and this balance is is more skewed in the way of, of supporting Democrats and, and human rights activists is through parliaments. That's that's the way citizens could try to influence it, as well as through the press and letters and articles. But but that's where the rubber hits the road. I think I saw you next. Yes, please. Thank you. Um, my question is about uh, the methodology that you used for your book, because a lot of a lot of us in the audience are doing research uh, either for master thesis, PhD, or other projects. And can you, first of all, I have two questions. Can you tell us more about the practical challenges of interviewing diplomats and people in uh, top political uh, positions? Uh, diplomats are either still in office or retired diplomats. Uh, in French, we talk about the langue de bois, the, the, the wooden tongue of uh, speaking with, with diplomats and actually getting more information or valuable information more than what you would read just in an official government statement. So that's my first question. Okay. My second question is about you doing research uh, and involving, uh, evolving outside of academia. And this is actually the case for a lot of us, I mean, Humanity in Action is a practical example that ac academia doesn't have the monopoly of knowledge anymore, anymore and of dissemination of knowledge. But you said yourself that diplomats tend to be conservative. And they can be really snobs towards uh, people who are doing research evolving outside of academic environment. Just, you know, working for online journals or do, writing your own book mm -hmm. uh, as you did. So if you can give us advice about how, how you did that and what were the challenges. Okay. Well, uh, I'll try to answer the second question first just because it's freshest in my mind. Um, I was actually, I thought we were remarkably lucky most of the time. The hardest part is finding out who to talk to. Most of the people, once you find them, want to talk. Uh, they, they, they're quite frustrated Often, uh, they'll make a point. You know, quite a number of the diplomats said, "Okay, you can't quote me on this, but you could use it as background." Or, but some, of, most of them didn't even do that. They said, "Yeah, you quote me." I mean, they know this isn't going to be a mass market. You know, heavily read publication out in, the, in a mass audience, uh, but it will get back to HQ probably if somebody reads their mail. Uh, so. <laughs> Most of the time, I mean, uh, it, the, the hardest part is finding out, okay, who was in post at the time that I'm concerned with, who's willing to talk? Which embassy was the most active? Uh, who would have the most interesting story? Who did what? Because uh, you have to start with that sh scrap of information to try to build a mosaic. And it's never a complete mosaic. I mean, we are finding new bits and pieces of case studies that, were even in the original edition of the handbook uh, that we didn't know, and it actually could color the whole picture. And uh, so, so some of these things have to be rewritten, uh, which is not fun, uh, but it's it's fascinating all the same. So that's the biggest challenge. Now, academics would blanch uh, because research methodology is just. 
we view it more as trying to put together a story. We want to show, we, each case study sort of begins with a, a sort of short historical synopsis so you have the context of the given situation that, in which these diplomats were operating. And then you try to find, you have to find enough material of what the diplomats did know. So for example, in the Egypt case, uh, the individual diplomats on the ground had less influence because, because it was such an important strategic relationship for, for the U.S. and the EU, especially after this Mediterranean Union, uh, which has been stillborn, which was a joint production of Sarkozy and Mubarak, uh, that um, both out of business now. Uh, though Sarko might come back. In any event, uh, that uh, the, they had less running room. They also probably would, if, if we found the right people, might have more to say, but it would be less, less relevant to the overall picture. Um, so methodologically, we'd probably get, you know, I get an F from, from, a, from a professor. You know, for example, we made a stylistic point. Do we want to have a bunch of footnotes in here? Yes or no? Uh, in my, my draft case studies, I have footnotes because I want to remember where I heard this stuff. And now that we're going to the publisher, they're like, where are your footnotes? <laughs> and if you've ever written anything years later and tried to retro-engineer where you read something, it ain't fun. Uh, luckily, I'm covered more than my colleague is because of the, just uh, I have to do it more pedantically. Uh, the way we divvied up the writing of the book is he, uh, and, and we, of course we edit and, and write in each other's sections, but I concentrated on the case studies for the most part, though... As former ambassador to Russia, he wrote the Russia case study. Jeremy did. And uh, he wrote the format of sort of defining the kinds of things diplomats could do because he was a serving diplomat. He was, he was in better position to do that uh, than me. Uh, remind me of your, 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 your first angle. How do you get diplomats to talk with yeah. a wooden tongue? Yeah. Uh, again, I think I kind of answered that. I mean, they really, they really mostly want to talk. I mean, I'll give you... But there's a difference between talking and saying things which are useful for you. Mostly they say things that are useful, though. That, that, it, it surprised me. Uh, and, of course, you run into some deadbeats who don't want to, they, they don't want to tell anything, or they only want to talk about themselves. And so they'd say, well, of course we were the most forward-leading embassy. <laughs> uh, and I'd say, okay, but what other embassies were you working with? What was the nature of that relationship? For example, in Ukraine, when I was there. It was fascinating because there was a sort of clearinghouse. It was chaired by the Canadians, but it was co-chaired by the Americans and the EU. Um, it's actually funny because the Dutch ambassador came in wearing orange. He said, that's our national color. We could do that <laughs> during the Orange Revolution, which was, showed some solidarity. Uh, but um, what they did, they started this before the elections because everybody knew it was going to be a dirty campaign. Everybody knew it. But they, nobody foresaw a revolution, but... Uh, even the people who fought it didn't foresee it, uh, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, e immediately before, they were like, ah, we're not sure we're going to respond if they steal the election. Anyway, the, they had this, this working group set up looking at the electoral machinery, looking at, um, at the abuse of administrative resources, they call it so using state offices to, uh, for your candidate, um, the civil society and media, those were the four working groups. And they, they, they followed this at the working level, and every month the ambassadors would meet. And they'd discuss it, and they'd say, okay, well, what are we going to do? Do we need to do a demarche? 
who do we and they, the fun part was they invited the Ukrainian foreign ministry to be part of it and they sort of they boycotted it so then they could never say you were never invited <laughs> so so it, it kind of defanged the a lot of the the, the criticism that would have come uh, so that was the only place where I saw you know democracies really interacting in a strategic way and I haven't seen it anywhere since I mean I know there are EU regular ambassadorial meetings in post but I don't know whether it has that sort of strategic dynamic but you know a lot of these ambassadors the former ambas American ambassador to Burma is now teaching in Minnesota my grandmother lives in Minnesota so uh, one time I I, when we were doing the Burma case study, I called him and he says, yeah, come up to Carleton College. And he had so much stuff to tell. And there was a Burmese, Burmese student that was there who was a protester in 1988. And these guys, they were interviewing each other. I was just trying to keep up. Because uh, it was like, oh, you thought, you thought the Marines were coming? You were wrong. You thought you'd be safe in front of the American embassy? No, they still shot you there. And it was, it was brilliant. So these, most of these guys love to talk. So that's been the least of my worries. I mean, occasionally you'll find somebody you just can't track down, especially if they're still serving diplomat. It's a time issue. But it's usually not a lack of will. Uh, I think Diana was next. Okay, we've got time for one more. Okay, sorry. I've been very wordy. You know, good question. I, I, let me just rephrase it or bounce it back to you to make sure I got it right. The, the foreign diplomats are accepting the political elites in the way they operate? Yeah, and, and they are accepting this correlation in a way that you mentioned before, like uh, wasting time and just having this uh, place uh, because it's popular or, or at least semi-popular uh, place to be when uh, developing your diplomatic career. You know, for the benefit of those who are not Bosnia familiar, just very, very briefly, that the, the, the it's a specific case because foreign foreign governments actually have a much more much more important role in the way the country works than you know you they're not just representing their government. I mean, there's international legally validated authority through the high representative. Uh, uh, and and the, the Peace Implementation Council, which was a body that was set up to oversee the implementation of the Dayton Peace Agreement, to whom the high representative, whom the high representative represents, um, their steering board is America, Britain, France, Germany, it, Germany, Italy, Russia, Turkey, which represents the Organization of the Islamic Conference, 
the European Commission, and then the France, no, excuse me, Spain and the Netherlands are observers. That's when people say the international community in Bosnia, they basically mean that group plus the EU, maybe NATO too, but they're 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 quite convergent. Um, so they have they have a they actually have authority in a way, the, more authority in Bosnia than they do, say, in Serbia or Macedonia or, or Croatia, uh, in a sense. And yeah, I mean, from my own personal perspective, this sort of blends what I do most of the time with, with the handbook. Um, they end up validating uh, the political elites that exist that have no interest in the country working. Uh, and they've, 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 they, uh, I think that the, the general attitude had been, it was based on a deluded assumption that European Union enlargement would, would motivate the Bosnian political elites to, uh, to straighten up and fly right and do, do enough to make the country work. Um, there's no evidence of that. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary, that these guys already have everything they want. The EU cannot offer them anything that's better than the, the, the formula they have, which is, can you keep what you stole? Yeah. Can you keep stealing? Yeah. Do you remain unaccountable both legally and politically? Yes, because it's an oligarchy that we pretend is a democracy. So... So, in part, foreign diplomats who are operating in that environment, if you admit how bad it is, you're complicit. Because, you know, we didn't create Dayton, but we midwifed it. And it was built around the signatories who had to sign it, right? And so, so in essence, you created a ruling elite that has no interest in change. And um, diplomats in general, but then when you add the overlay of the European Union, which is based on partnership, too, you know, you assume my my bureaucrats are going to talk to your bureaucrats, and they'll work out you know whether you pass law X, Y, or Z, and you meet the the the, the key commitments, and we move forward because they actually assume you want what you say you want, which we know isn't true in Bosnia. Um, they're a real dis they're at a cognitive disadvantage to be able to handle it because they don't. Uh, it's not that these people are stupid, but it it doesn't fit the script of the way it's supposed to work. Uh, so they go through the motions, they meet with the foreign ministry of a country that can't have a foreign policy because of its own internal dynamics. Uh, they, they, they implore parliamentarians to vote a certain way. It's, it's, it's quite often an, a very unedifying spectacle. Uh, and it's self-defeating. I mean, they've lost, I mean, the, the credibility of the international community in Bosnia, including the Americans, has never been lower than it is right now since Dayton. Uh, so, but... Um, I mean, if they were to apply some of these assets, and they were, to, they first of all, they'd have to start thinking strategically. They'd have to recognize what the problem is. The problem is you have a political elite that doesn't care about serving the citizens at all. I mean, and and don't delude yourselves. I mean, our my political elite, your political elite would operate just as irresponsibly given the opportunity. Uh, they, uh, but they don't have they don't have to worry about it. Because they don't have to care. It's a great system. It's, I mean, it's a great place to be a politician. Probably the best place to be a politician in Europe. So, yeah, the, the, the international diplomatic core of democracies has not gotten its head around why Bosnia screwed up so they haven't figured out how they can help. They could. They could help enormously if they were so inclined. And it's not so much that they're... They are in an effective, unwitting alliance with the Bosnian politicians against the citizens. That's effectively how it works. 
They don't see it that way, of course, but that's that's basically where we are. Is that? Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.